Psalm 27. This is a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you could flip in your bulletins or in your Bibles to Psalm 27, that was the psalm reading this morning. So we've been working our way through the story of the Bible, and I'm not sure if this is the best way to do it the way that I've been doing it. Uh, there's a lot of overlap because uh, we start at the beginning and working our way through and then kind of circling back from time to time. We're going to do that uh, again this morning. And uh, again, just a reminder, we're not going to dig down into one text. We're going to take sort of a fly overview of three texts this morning and use that as a way to kind of look out over the landscape of the whole story of the Bible. And as you've noticed, those of you who've been here through, through the sermon series, there's the story of the Bible is a story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's not a simple story. In other words, there's lots, it's a complicated story. It's not a short story. It's a complicated story. There's lots of moving parts. There's lots of different threads that are being, weaving in and out and coming together to make one complete garment. We talked last week about kingdom. The question of who's in charge is a major question in the story of the Bible starting at the very beginning and working all the way up to Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is now here in himself. We've talked about uh, Abraham and the promise of the offspring, and we're still not finished with that. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks. We've talked about the land, this, this uh, who does the earth belong to? That's a question from the very beginning of Genesis all the way up to the end of Revelation. Today we're going to come back and we're going to talk again about the question of where is God? Where is he? Where is God? Where is his presence? And again, I'm going to pull this old illustration out that I used last time. I'm going to use it again. God is everywhere. I know that for those of you who are Christians who, you know, confirmation class knowledge. God is omnipresent. 
He's everywhere at the same time. But he chooses to put his special presence in different locations throughout the course of the human story. And the illustration I use is, and hopefully this will make sense, um, does, God, does God live in the hearts of his people? Does God live in the hearts of Christians? Yes, that's true. The Bible talks about that. Was God in Adolf Hitler's heart? The answer is no, right? If you're, if you're thinking about it in terms of God living in people's heart, his, his, his people's hearts, God was not living in, but if God's omnipresent, was he not then in Adolf Hitler's? Well, yes. God's everywhere all the time. He's in Adolf Hitler's heart. He's in hell right now. He's everywhere, good places and bad places. When I say that Jesus lives in my heart, I mean something special. God's special presence is here with me. That's the presence that we're talking about. Yes, God is omnipresent. But in Genesis 1, he creates this temple where he wants to live. That's what uh, um, uh, Genesis 1 is the story uh, in, in, I was reading from a guy named uh, John Walton, not uh, John Boy on the television series, The Waltons from the 1960s and 70s, but a, a professor at Wheaton College who teaches Old Testament named John Walton, who wrote a book called, um, I actually don't remember what it's called, but it has to do with oh, something like the, uh, the, something about the meaning of Genesis 1. It, sorry, I botched that up. If you have any questions about it, uh, wanting to check that book out of the library, let me know. And he argues in there, and I think it's pretty convincing, that Genesis 1 tells the story of this creation that God is building, complete with an image in the center of it, Adam and Eve. God wants, what's the point? The point is, God wants to live with his people on this earth. God wants to walk in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what he wants. He put Adam and Eve on this earth to take care of it, to take care of each other. He wants to come and live with them. However, say this every week now, this is, uh, this is the discouraging part. Adam and Eve screw it up. And we are complicit with them in rebelling against God and meaning that he can no longer live with them. He kicks them out of the garden. He kicks them out of this temple that he's created. God and humans can no longer live together. Not because God is petty and angry, but it's the nature of a holy God to destroy that which is not holy. Again, uh, uh, an old illustration from a previous sermon this summer. Fire and paper, there's not any sort of emotional vindictiveness between the two of them, but if fire and paper come together, paper will be destroyed. The best thing that God can do to rescue us is to separate us from his presence at that moment and come up with a plan to fix it. God comes up with a plan. He says, I, you can't live in my presence, but I will come up with a plan where we can be together. Enter Abraham, enter Moses, enter the text we read just a few minutes ago from Exodus. God says, I'm gonna build a tabernacle and I'm gonna live in the middle of you and I'm gonna create a sacrificial system that will allow you to be holy so that the two of us can live together here on earth again. All right, now, Psalm 27. And this is, I'm gonna repeat some points I made in that sermon a couple months ago. So uh, just bear with me if you remember that. If you don't remember it, this would be a good refresher. What is the temple in the Old Testament? What does the temple do? All right. Psalm 27, we looked at a different psalm last time. This is, you can almost pick any psalm that talks about the temple at random, and it's gonna cover these points. Let's do Psalm 27 this morning. The first thing that the temple does is it's a place where God lives on earth. That's what the temple was in Genesis 1, the creation. God wants to live with his people. The temple is where God lives on earth. Look at verse four. One thing have I asked of the Lord, David says, that will I seek after, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That's the temple. That's the temple of God. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to live in God's house so I can look at God's face. I want to live in God's house so that I can look at God's face. The temple is the place where God lives. You want to be with God? Old Testament, you've got to go to the temple. Now, that's a different, let's just make a side point here, and maybe this is helpful for those of you who aren't Christians, maybe not. There's, there's a question that we Westerners are obsessed with in you know, Christian, religious, agnostic, atheist dialogue, which is, does God exist? And lots of times that question, does God exist or does God not exist, it actually informs the way that we Christians talk about believing in God. Like I say, I believe in God. And what a lot of us hear when I say I believe in God is we hear that phrase in the context of the question, does God exist or does he not exist? And when I say I believe in God, a lot of you hear, oh, you think that God exists. That's what that means. I believe in God. That means I believe that God exists. You know what's interesting is that the Old Testament, New Testament too, the whole Bible, it's never very, very interested at all in the question, does God exist or not? Frankly, it's unimportant. I mean, God exists, that's important, but our question, does he exist or not? It's kind of a way to hold, it's kind of a way to stiff arm him, to hold him off at a distance. I believe God exists over there. Remember, this is, we talked about deism a couple weeks ago. God exists somewhere up there. Doesn't really affect me at all, but I believe he exists. He's out there somewhere. The question that's more to the point is, can I see him? Does this make sense? You believe God exists? That's great, James says. Satan believes God exists too, and at least he trembles. But can I see him? That's the question. That's the question that the Bible is most interested in. Where is he at, and how can I see his face? Uh, just give you a quick example, just to kind of like hopefully try to capture the emotional import of what I'm trying to say here. Think about for a second, think about the person in your life that has passed away that you miss most. Think about that person. Now, what if you found out that, uh, and I, I can't even create a story to make sense of this, what if you found out that that person actually was still alive, that that person didn't die, you were mistaken, and that they are still alive, they still exist somewhere on this earth? Would you say, that's terrific. At least I know they exist. You, you would, if you found out that, that your best friend in the world who passed away, that was a mistake, and they're alive, you would be desperate to see them. You wouldn't be interested in questions of like, do they really exist or not? Can you prove it to me? All right, you proved it. Okay, they exist. That's great. No, you'd be like, how do I get to them as fast as I can? That's what the Bible wants you to know and desire about God's existence. Not that it's a fact. It's relatively unimportant. But that he's real and that he wants a relationship with you that he's actually gone to great lengths to move down here to this earth to spend time with you. That's what the temple does. It's a place, it's a point on the planet where God's realm and human realm intersect. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. It's the place where eternity and time overlap and interlock. It's the place where you can go to actually see the face of God. That's what the temple does. Second thing it does is, it's the place where God reveals his will. Last line of verse four, we just looked at. David wants to, to, to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and also to inquire in his temple. David wants to know truth. I wanna be able to go and say to God, 
What's your will? Tell me what you want me to know. That's what the temple does. It's a place where we can go, where God's people in the Old Testament could go to inquire and find out what his will is. Third thing, the temple is the place, and it's the only place where God forgives sins. He insists over and over in the Old Testament, do not do sacrifices for sins anywhere else. You can only do it in the place that I choose, in the temple in Jerusalem, the tabernacle in Moses' day. Later on, Second Kings chapter eight, it's gonna get built into a brick and mortar structure by Solomon. God insists you cannot, get, you cannot get forgiveness of sins unless animals are sacrificed. We'll talk about that in a different sermon. Second of all, it has to be in this specific place, in my house. It's the only place where you can get forgiveness of sins. That's what the temple does. It's a place where God lives. It's a place where he reveals himself. And it's a place where he forgives sins. And the psalmist says, oh, so let me just emphasize verse uh, six. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. David says, this is where I go, the tabernacle or the temple. David's son will actually build the temple. This is where I go to do sacrifices for sin. That's where I get my joy from, is knowing that my relationship with God has been made whole because there has been sacrifice for sin made. David also insists, this is a very interesting line in here, that this is the most important question, this is the most important reality that you can access, is this reality of God living on earth. What's the most real thing in your life? What's the thing that from the moment that you were born, your earliest memories, that was reality? That was your world. That created the orb in which you moved and lived. Not for all of you, but for most of us, it was our parents. It was the home that we grew up in. It's formed and shaped us moving forward. And our parents were our whole life up until a certain age. You move out, you get married, you have kids, many of you have but even then, your parents still form the matrix and the framework through which you see reality. And when they're gone, it's almost like you're, for those of you who've lost a, a parent, it's almost like you've been unmoored from the thing that gave you direction and purpose and meaning. That's, that's reality. David says there's a bigger reality than that. Look what he says in verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. There's no indication in David's life story that his father and mother actually forsake, forsook him. In fact, many translations will say, for if my father and my mother have forsaken me, because I think they rightly get here that David is creating a sort of a hypothetical. Like compared to God's devotion to me, compared to the way that God never forsakes me, the love that my mother and father had for me is almost like being, it's, it's, it's weak sauce. And if my father and mother, if the thing that mattered most to me in the center of my universe were gone, I would still have an ultimate reality. I would still have God who's come here to live with me, who's come here to reveal himself to me, who's come here to forgive my sins. All right, that's a little bit of that's review from the Old Testament um, when we talked about it several weeks ago. A lot of you know, uh, this has come up uh, frequently in the sermon series too, that there's a huge crisis event with this house that God has built to live with his people. In 586 BC, it's destroyed by the Babylonians. And now there's a question, where's God at? His house is gone. The place where he's chosen to live is gone. Where is he at now? And the answer the prophets give, you can read Ezekiel 11 if you're interested, is he's gone. He left. That's why his house got destroyed, because he doesn't live there anymore. We've, God's people rebelled against him, and God said, I can't live here anymore. He left. The Babylonians destroyed his temple. But the prophets insist over and over that he will come back someday. All right, fast forward to the New Testament. John chapter 1. Can you flip over to that in, the, um, um, in your bulletins or in your Bibles? And I'm just going to point out three things. I'm not going to read this whole thing again. 
but I'm going to point out three points that Jesus made. I alluded to these several weeks ago. Let's, let's deal with them specifically now. And then after that, we're going to move on and do something brand new in here, which what's the next step? Okay. So the temple is the place where God lives. The temple is the place where God reveals himself. The temple is the place where God forgives sins. As soon as you get to the gospel of John, John wants to make the point that that's no longer important for you to understand because now there's a new temple. God has fulfilled his promise to rebuild the temple, but it's not actually a building. It's a human being. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some of you know that that word dwelt is the word for, it's actually just the verb form of tabernacle in Greek. John is using temple language when he says, Jesus became flesh and became a tabernacle, became a temple among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Jesus is the place where God lives on earth. Jesus is the temple. God has chosen once again to live on earth, but now he's done it in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus is also the place where God reveals himself like the temple. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Do you want to know God? You have to know Jesus. The only way to know God is to know Jesus. There's no way to understand who God is outside of Jesus. So a you hear this a lot. I've had a conversation with somebody just recently um, uh, about the God of Christianity being the same as the God of uh, Judaism and the God of Islam. We all worship the same God. And, and Christians have to be quick to say, that's not true. I know what's being said. I, I, I know what, what's being meant by that, that, Judea, that, that Judaism and Christianity and Islam are all sort of related family ways, but neither Judaism nor Islam worships God as a Jewish construction worker. Only Christianity insists that the only way to know God is through this Jewish construction worker, is through Jesus of Nazareth. It's vital. Jesus is the temple. He's the only place on the earth where God reveals himself. And then third, Jesus is the place where God forgives sins and the only place where God forgives sins. John the Baptist says, verse 29, last verse of the reading, the gospel reading. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whatever else the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament meant, and I told you that we'll talk about that later, one thing that I have to make clear here now is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of them. What they did, what the animal sacrifices did, temporarily, incompletely, only as echoes and shadows in the Old Testament, forgiving sins. Jesus is the one who gave up his life to forgive our sins. Jesus is the only one, he's the only place where God lives, he's the only one who reveals God, he's the only place where uh, sins are forgiven. Now, if it's not in your bulletin, I'll just quote it real quick to you. You move on a chapter over, John's gonna make it even more explicit by throwing in a story about Jesus cleansing the temple, the actual building, and Jewish leaders getting angry with him and saying, what right do you have to do that? What right do you have to shut the temple down? And Jesus says, tear the temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. Only later his disciples say, oh, he was talking about his body. He was talking about him. It's only later that his disciples realize, wait a sec, he is the temple. He can destroy the temple. He can shut the temple down because it's not necessary. It's obsolete. He's the one who reveals God to us. He's the place where God lives. He's the one who forgives our sins. Jesus is the one who does this. All right, now, moving on to the next chapter. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for me and you? So, so first of all, Obviously, Jesus is completely and absolutely essential. To turn over to the Ephesians reading real quick, and then we'll be done here in a second. The epistle reading, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. 
Jesus is absolutely essential. He is the temple of God. How do we go to Jesus then? The Old Testament believers would go to the tabernacle, to the temple, to meet with God. How do we go to the temple? How do we go to Jesus? The answer, of course, is, uh, and we'll look at this text in just a second. The answer, of course, is, is that Jesus actually comes to us. It's the first, first answer. Is that you don't have to go to Jesus. Jesus comes to us. The thought that somehow what we're doing here is figuring out how to get to Jesus is misplaced. It's more philosophical than it is Christian. It's more other religion. It's more, uh, it's more uh, a Taoist. It's more uh, Muslim. It's more Jewish. It's more Zoroastrian than, than Christian. Because the story of the Christian Bible is not the story of your quest and my quest to get to God. It's never, it's never like that. Ne- God does not put Adam and Eve in the garden and say, you're in the garden now, let's write this big old book and let's spend thousands and thousands and thousands of years for you to figure out how to get to heaven someday. Never in the Bible is the trajectory that we are supposed to figure out how to go up to God. Instead, over and over and over, Genesis 1, Exodus 40, Jesus, over and over and over, it is the story of God's quest to come down here and live with us. You don't have to go and find Jesus. He came down here to find you. He came here to be with you. He's not set you some sort of riddle or puzzle that if you figure out, you can finally discover ultimate reality. He knows we're too stupid for that. He's not set you some sort of moral quest where you can complete the 24 steps of Hindu karma or or Dharma, and then you can finally see God's face. He knows we're too morally weak for that. Instead, he says, I will come down and set up shop down there. I'll come to you. You can't come to me. I'll come to you. You can't get through the wall that separates me and you. I'll break through the wall that separates me and you and come live with you. That's constantly the story of the Bible. So be encouraged. I don't have anything complicated or philosophical to tell you today about going into the temple of God. Jesus comes here. But what does that look like? Because our, our desire, there's something about us that wants to make it complicated. All right, very simply, Ephesians 2. And I, we're not gonna read the whole thing, but look at verse 20. This new household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, so now all you can see he's starting to use a building language. Jesus is the cornerstone, and there's this building that's being built. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, wait a second. Jesus is the temple. John made that clear. But now Paul is saying, you're the temple. You're the temple. That's true. But you're the temple because Jesus is the temple and you are in Jesus. He says this twice. He says it at the beginning of the verse, in whom, that's in Jesus. And he says it at the end of the verse, in the Lord. If you've been baptized into Jesus, if you are a believer in Jesus, that makes you a part of the temple of God, which is Jesus. So the Christian church in Jesus is being built up into this temple of the Lord. Uh, Very explicitly in verse 22. In him you also are being built together, together Jews and Gentiles, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where does God live? Where does God reveal himself? Where does God forgive sins? Answer one, Gospel of John, Jesus. He is the new temple. Answer two, which sounds different, but it's actually the same answer. 
the body of Jesus, the Christian church. The Christian church is the place where God lives, where God reveals himself, and where God forgives sins. Now, how, do we, how, how, how does that happen? There's a ton of answers to this. I'm gonna give you the two, two, two of the answers that, that Paul gives right here, and then we'll be done, I promise. First of all, Scripture. This is built, verse 20, first line. This is built, this whole temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and in the prophets. Do you want to see God's face? Is your prayer, God, I want to seek your face? You got to be in Scripture. The whole shebang is built on Holy Scripture. If you are questing for God, but you are not in God's Word, then you are doing some sort of attempt where you're trying by your own means to get up there. God's Word is the means by which He comes down here. You don't have to do anything fancy, you don't have to do anything smart, just be in God's Word. So once again, this is my encouragement for you. I made this at the beginning of the sermon series. Whatever it is that you need to fast from, maybe it's social media, maybe it's your favorite political news channel, uh, maybe it's the Cardinals, that was easy this year. Whatever it is that you need to fast from and say, I'm not gonna get my stories from the outside world, I'm gonna get my story from Scripture, that's how you see God's face. Be in God's Word. This is super simple. Almost all of you, in fact, I would say all of you that are of a certain age know how to read. That's how easy God has made access to his face. Be in scripture. Be in scripture. The second thing, the, the third thing is this, and then and it will be done. We see his face in Christian community. Isn't that what this whole text is about in Ephesians 2? Racial reconciliation. In the church, there is no place for Jewish-style believers and Gentile-style believers and then, you know, what we, if this was America and not Ephesus, what they would do is they would establish different churches, right? American Lutheran Church and Jewish, or uh, Gentile Lutheran Church and um, Jewish Lutheran Church because we have different worship styles, we eat different, we talk different. It's best if we just separate. And Paul insists, no. If the gospel is real, then the things, the identities that divide you, your age, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your gender, those are all made one in Jesus Christ. Do you want to experience God's face? It happens in Christian community. How does God build his temple? Well, since Jesus, the temple. How does Jesus build this temple is he creates this new community. He pulls in believers from all different stripes. And he says, I'm going to put you together. You're not going to get along sometimes because you see the world differently. People with different personalities. I'm going to throw you together and you're going to be, and the way the world would work is, is we would either separate from each other or we would create little cliques in here. And Paul says it's not going to be like that. The only way to see Christ's face, I shouldn't say the only way because I just said scripture is the way to do it. You have to do it, so it has to be on the basis of scripture. In Christian community, Jesus exists in his people, in the body of Christ. This is very un American. You cannot find Jesus by yourself. Jesus gives himself to you as a gift in Christian community. So be involved in Christian community. Be involved in God's word. Seek his face. Now, last line and then we'll be done. I know that some of us are thinking, okay, read the Bible, like be in church. I don't, I, and when I say be in church, I don't mean like go to worship service. That's definitely essential. I mean be in community, like seven days a week. Be in life with other Christians. That's what I mean. Some of you might be saying, well, that's just like, okay, it's just like junior high Bible class answers. Like, I, I need something d deeper. And I'll just quote this line from 
uh, the story of Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings 5, when he goes to the prophet to get rid of his uh, uh, leprosy, and, and Elijah tells him, go wash in uh, the Jordan River seven times. He says, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. And his friend, one of his servants, says to him, look, if he had asked you to do something hard, you would have gone and d- done it. And it doesn't make any sense. He's asking you to do something easy. Just go and do it. God is asking you to do something easy today. He's not asking you to be smart. He's not asking you to be moral even. He's asking you to be in his word and be in Christian community. That's where he lives. You want to know God? It's Jesus, wherever Jesus is at, word and sacrament, Christian community. Go there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your presence. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for not leaving us with puzzles and tests to get to you, but thank you for coming and meeting us where we're at, for accommodating yourself, for putting on our flesh, for wearing our emotions and our thoughts, for putting our skin on, and for coming here and giving yourself to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.